Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. We're going to start in uh, John's book. John uh, is uh, wanting to make sure that people understand who Jesus is, that Jesus is in fact the Word of God, that he in fact is God. And so he starts his book in John chapter 1, verse 1, saying this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him was nothing made that has been made. Guys got that? And then what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go for a second verse, and I know we don't normally do this, but in light of today's topic, check out Psalms 111, verse 2. Look what the psalmist says. He says this, Great are the works of the Lord, They are studied by all who delight in him. What's fascinating about this verse is it actually is uh, over the laboratory at Cambridge University. Um, There's a story about Sherlock Holmes that goes like this. Sherlock Holmes and Watson went camping and they had fallen asleep. And in the middle of the night, Sherlock felt a little chill. And so he woke up and he uh, went over and uh, elbowed Watson and asked him and said, uh, Watson, look up. What do you see? Watson said, uh, I see a mil- millions of stars. Sherlock says, well, what does that tell you? Watson says, well, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Uh, I also deduce that the time is about a quarter past three. I can also observe that God is powerful and that I am insignificant. I also suspect that we'll have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you? Sherlock looks over at him and says, Watson, you idiot, our tent has been stolen. (laughs) See, often when we speak of the topic of science and religion, I feel that we can get so caught up that we can't see the forest for the trees. And we could get into various arguments. We could talk about the Kalam cosmological argument. We could talk about the fine tuning of the universe or how uh, something came from nothing. We could begin to talk about evolution or even the design argument. But I think the question that is being posed to culture today and has been for quite some time is this, you can write it down, can science and faith coexist? Can science and faith coexist? And really this argument goes uh, different ways. It's been said uh, by different people and structured in different ways, but look at the screen. This is how I'm going to structure it today. Usually it's posed in this way. You can either choose science or faith, but you can't choose both. You can either choose science or faith, but you can't choose both. Now bear with me today for this sermon, if you want to call it that. It might be a little bit more of a lecture. We'll see how this goes. Uh, And so, but we have scores of people who are wrestling with this fact. Do I choose science or do I choose my faith? And so this morning I want to dispel the myth And I want to start off by really showing you two people, 
Uh, if I could draw your attention to the screen, you'll see these pictures here. First is Peter Higgs, uh, and he's famous for the Higgs boson, which I know most of you are probably familiar with. The other gentleman is H.T.S. Wilton. He helped split the atom. Both of these men are scientists. Both of these men have won Nobel Prizes in physics. One of these men is an atheist and the other a Christian. So what is it that, that makes them different? Is it their physics? No. Is it their science? No. It's their worldview. And so the real question is not, is science and faith at odds? The real question is, are their worldviews at odds? Because they are both brilliant scientists. They have both reached the top of their fields. The difference is on one hand, you have naturalism, and on the other hand, you have theism. Now, when we talk about naturalism and theism, there are scientists, brilliant scientists, on both sides. And so the question is, well, if the battle isn't faith in science, then why does it seem like society is sort of forcing this, what you're calling, Pastor Roger, a false battle upon us? Well, it actually starts with a philosophy called scientism. Science and scientism are two different things. See, what scientism basically says is that science is the only way to truth. Now, of course, that flies in the face of what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, but scientism says, listen, that science is the only way to truth. Well, the first problem with that statement is it is a self-contradictory statement because it is not a statement of science. So if it's true, it's false. You say, what do you mean? Well, if I were to make the statement uh, like this, there's no such thing as truth. Well, if that statement is true, it's false. You say, Pastor Roger, it's too early for that kind of logic. I understand, yes. Let me give you another example of, an, uh, of how an atheist uh, views things and how a theist views things that are both scientists. The molecular biologist Francis Crick says this. He says, look at this, look at this quote. You, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of, of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than behavior of vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. That's all they are. When you feel joy, when you feel sadness, when you have memories of pushing your little kid on a swing or going on that first date, all, all, and you have all these kind of feelings, all it is, that's just molecules, nothing more. But then on the other side, you have another brilliant scientist, Schrodinger, who says this, he's a quantum physicist, and he says this, he says, science knows nothing of beautiful and ugly, of good or bad, God or eternity. Science sometimes pretends to answer questions in these domains, but the answers are very often so silly that we're not inclined to take them seriously. Wow. So, see, what we have to understand is in many ways science is limited. And here's why. Because science and faith speak to two different categorical questions. 
professor of chemistry, John Polkinghorne of Cambridge University says this, science speaks to the how questions of life while faith speaks to the why questions of life. Let me give you an example, one that he gives. He says, if you were to ask why is the water boiling, you could say, well, you know, the transfer of heat causes the H2O to rise in temperature, and at a certain temperature degree, the hydrogen bonds and then releases gas molecules. That's why the water is boiling. That's one answer. The second answer is because I wanted a pot of tea. You see? Two different answers, but both are correct. So what do we do? Well, I think the best thing to do is to follow the evidence. Look at somebody next to say, follow the evidence. Follow the evidence. Follow. We're going we're gonna to play detective a little bit. And uh, my wife is very good at playing detective. She, she is a pro at this. And so I have, I have become uh, finely tuned in this area uh, because she has taught me well. And, uh, but we need to follow the evidence. Modern science exploded really in the 16th century, 17th as well, under people like Galileo and Kepler and Newton. And C.S. Lewis summarizes their works in this fascinating statement. He says, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected a law in nature because they expected a lawgiver. You see, what is so fascinating is what this is saying is far from the belief that God is hindering science, that in fact God is the motor that drove it. In fact, it's because of God that we can do science in the first place. Actually, the very first human being that we ever see doing science, we find in Genesis chapter 3. When God asked Adam to classify the various species, he says, I want you to classify and name these animals. And it wouldn't be until thousands of years later that science would give this practice a title, but it's called taxonomy. It's fascinating how the Bible tells us that the universe did not always exist, that it had a beginning. It wouldn't be until thousands of years later that science would buttress that fact and agree, give it a title, call it Big Bang. It's interesting that science tells us that everything that came into existence, listen carefully, everything that came into existence had to have a cause greater than itself. Science also tells us that the universe came into existence. Therefore, science has to tell us that the universe had a cause greater than itself. Now, if that cause is God, then why can't we ask the question, well, what created God? Well, it's because it's a dumb question. <laughs> See, let me explain. First of all, the law says this, the, the scientific law says everything that came into existence had to have a cause. God never came into existence. But also, it's kind of a dumb question because it's like asking, well, where is the bachelor's wife? Well, when you ask that question, you either are being silly or you're changing the definition of bachelor. See, when you ask the question, who created God, you're either being silly or you're changing the definition of God, you see. 
And so look at this. Kepler, the, the uh, astrophysicist, says this. The chief aim of all investigation to the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God and which he has revealed to us in the language, and of course he's an astrophysicist, so he'll say, in the language of mathematics. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> See, often atheistic scientists or naturalist scientists, they'll say, listen, because we have certain laws that explain certain things, we no longer need God. We have the laws of thermodynamics, right? Or we have the laws of uh, whatever. And they'll say, because we have these laws, we no longer need God because these scientific laws explain reality. Well, let's take Isaac Newton's law of gravity. Isaac Newton said, listen, here's the law of gravity. And Isaac Newton said, this will tell you what gravity does. But Isaac Newton says, but I have no theory of what gravity actually is. Did you know that we actually have no idea what gravity is? We could tell you what it does, but we can't explain what it is. In fact, the philosopher of, mathemat of mathematics, Wittgenstein, says this, the laws of nature describe the universe. They describe regularities, but they explain nothing. Interesting. See, both faith and science coupled together complement each other and bring about a greater understanding. In fact, Professor John Lennox of Pure Mathematics of Oxford University, who I have actually had the privilege of taking a course under, says this, God no more conflicts with science as an explanation of the universe than Henry Ford conflicts with the laws of internal combustion engine as an explanation for the motor car. Wow. See, when they tell you, listen, you have to choose God or science, you have to choose faith or science, that's like them saying you either have to choose Henry Ford or the laws of internal combustion to explain the motor car. Well, of course not. You can believe in both, can't you? And the reason scientism does this is because scientism has a false understanding and definition of faith. See, scientism will define faith as this, that faith is believing where there is no evidence. That's how they define faith. Faith is believing where there is no evidence. But see, that's not how the Bible describes faith. In fact, faith is a response to evidence, not a rejoicing of the absence of it, right? For, for instance, if we were to get onto an airplane, and uh, the airplane, you know, looks uh, a little banged up and kind of looks kind of bad. And we're like, what in the world kind of airplane is this? And you would ask me, well, how did this airplane, who built this thing, you know? And if I were to tell you, well, uh, what happened was a tornado went through a junkyard. And, and when the tornado was over, all of a sudden this plane was just put together, you know, somehow. And you were to kind of look at me and I were to say, well, let's get on board. <laughs> no. No, of course you want to get on, right? Of course not. The whole reason that you sit on the chairs that you're sitting on is because you have faith that it will hold you up. Why do you have that kind of faith? Because of evidence, thank you. Right? Because you've sat in chairs before. And so you assume that it will. It's very interesting. 
Faith is not rejoicing in the absence of evidence, but it's a response to the evidence that's been given. In a few moments, we're about to partake of Holy Communion. And here we have bread and, and we have wine. And what's fascinating about both of those is Jesus did a miracle with both of them. With bread, he took two loaves and fed over 5,000 people. With wine, remember he was at the, wait, the wedding in Canaan and they ran out. And so Jesus uh, went and turned water and took its molecular structure and, and changed it and made it into wine. Remember that? You say, well, wait a minute. How, I mean, you know, how are we supposed to really believe that, you know? I mean, we don't see that today. We don't see Jesus coming as a person form in front of us in flesh and turning water into wine. Some of us might wish that we did see that more often, right? Uh, we don't see him, you know, taking our McDonald's and multiplying it. Instead of having one Big Mac, we now have 10, even though that'd be dope, right? And so we're like, but wait a minute, are we really supposed to believe that? You know, come on. And here's the reality is, notice how we know that those are miracles. The reason we know that those are miracles are because of the scientific regularities that we already have in place. The, the reason we know that a specific scientific law has been broken in a particular place is because we have the scientific law. And so, and so what we see is we see we have these natural orders, and so when the supernatural comes into place, we can recognize that it's supernatural, right? I mean, wouldn't it be supernatural if I just began to levitate and float all over this place, all over you, and, and you were to, you know, be like, what's going on, you know, and, and you were to test it out, no strings attached? I mean, that'd be powerful. You see how big I am? That'd be, I mean, y'all need, if you ain't saved and you saw that, you'd be on the floor crying out to God, right? saying, Lord, please don't let him go on top of me, you know. <laughs> We'd be hearing all sorts of confessions of sin in this place, right? Wouldn't that be true? And you say, oh my goodness, for those of you that, you know, maybe are, are more scientific, you're like, oh, no, let's not talk about supernatural now. I mean, we, it, we can't really believe in the supernatural because that, it, it's not logical to believe in that. It's not rational to believe in that because science can't prove it. Wow. Well, actually, let me just give you a few things that everybody considers to be rational to believe, but that science can't prove. Can we do that? Yeah. How's that sound? I'll, I'll just do four this morning. We'll give you four things that science cannot prove, but yet it's rational for us to believe in these things. Number one, metaphysical truths. Metaphysical, metaphysical truths, like there are other minds besides our own. Or that the past wasn't created just five minutes ago with the appearance of age and memory. Now, listen, science cannot prove that, and yet we are all rational to believe that that's not true. We're all rational to believe that our existence didn't start five minutes ago and everything else was just kind of programmed into you, right? To make you think that it started a long time ago. Science can't prove that. Second thing, ethical beliefs, right? You cannot show by science that what the Nazis did in the concentration camps was actually anything evil. Whether it was good or bad, science doesn't speak to that. Aesthetic judgments, number three. If something is beautiful or ugly, science can't prove that. And yet we're all rational to believe that something's beautiful and something's not beautiful. 
If I were to say, oh, look at the beautiful sunrise, or look at my beautiful wife, or look at this beautiful painting, a scientist isn't going to come and be like, oh, pff, yeah, you're, you're irrational for believing in things like beauty and ugliness. And yet, science can't prove it. And finally, number four, most surprisingly, is science itself. Science itself cannot be justified by scientific method because it's saturated with unprovable assumptions. For example, the special theory of relativity. The entire theory hinges on the assumption that the speed of light is consistent in a one-way direction between two points, point A and B. But that's assumed. It can't be proven. See? These are just but a few things that science cannot prove, and yet we are considered to be rational in believing them. In fact, it was Charles Darwin himself who said he has this dilemma. And he said, the dilemma is this, if everything, everything, he says, including my own brain, came about by this sort of accidental, unguided process, then even my brain can't be trusted, which even means the theories that come from it can't be trusted. (laughs) See? I submit that far from science having buried God, not only do the results of science point towards his existence, but the scientific enterprise itself is validated by his existence. There was this huge company in India, and uh, they were hiring several departments, and uh, one of them was for a PR uh, group. And so uh, one of the interviewers, there's a, whole, there's a huge line, and so one of the interviewers goes in, and uh, he sits before a panel. And the panel begins to ask the interviewer some questions. Uh, first question was, when did India gain its independence? The interviewer said, uh, well, you know, several events took place, and it finally happened in 1947. They said, very good. Second question is, well, who is the father of the nation? The interviewer said, uh, well, you know, it's not really fair just to name one person when so many were involved. And so I would say several people were involved. They were impressed. Third question is this. They said, well, do you think, what do you think of the current corruption in the financial crisis? And so he said, well, you know, it's still being looked into and it's a little too early to say. They were pleased with his questions and they wanted him to come back for a second interview. And as they were dismissing him, they said, but uh, listen, can you please do us a favor and not tell anybody else the questions? Because we're going to ask the same questions to all of the people being interviewed. He said, sure, I got it. He walks out the door, and sure enough, the next person in line says, hey, uh, excuse me, excuse me. He says, "Uh, can you tell me what the questions are? He says, oh, I'm sorry, I can't. He says, well, okay, well, if you can't tell me the questions, can you tell me the answers? (laughs) He says, well, okay, I wasn't told that I can't tell the answers, right? So he says, fine, okay, answer number one uh, is that, you know, uh, several events happened and it finally came together in 1947. He says, okay, answer to number two, he says, well, you know, it's not just fair to name one person, there were several people involved, so we'll just say it's several people. And he says, okay. He says, answer number three is, uh, well, it's still looking, it's still being looked into, it's too soon to say. He's like, oh, great, thank you so much. So the second guy goes in, he's feeling confident, he sits down, he's ready with these answers, and, and the panel's looking, and, and one person on the panel says, um, before we begin, there's some um, items on your application that are missing we'd like to ask you about. 
He says, okay, sure, go ahead. He says, uh, okay, well, uh, when were you born? He said, well, you know, a few events took place and it finally happened in 1947. <laughs> they kind of looked at each other and said, okay. And they said, uh, well, uh, okay, next, uh, who's your father? He said, well, you know, it's not fair to name one person. So many people were involved that, uh, you know, we'll just leave it at that. A lot of people were involved. So finally they put the application down and the guy looked at him and said, sir, are you insane? He said, well, it's still being looked into. It's too early to say, you know. Science is all about asking questions. And, you know, as we come to a conclusion for this message, what I find is interesting is this, is that every question that is ever asked is either asked about a person or is asked by a person. Every question. Any question that's ever asked is either asked about a person or by a person. What does that tell us? That tells us that the questioner assumes that persons have intrinsic worth. Otherwise, there's no point in asking the question. That persons have intrinsic worth. And the problem with that is that assumption cannot be made with random evolutionary processes. In fact, the more that you begin to study and look into the inner workings and the intelligence that is within the universe, the more you are faced with the awe and the wonder of the mind that was behind it. The more you look into the structures and, and the informational data of things like DNA, right? Longest word in human history filled with information. But the more that you are in awe by the mind behind it, because wherever you see intelligence, then there has to be a mind there, you see. In fact, when you look into the universe and study it, what you'll find is both the ugliness of the fall of man and the love and the beauty of Christ. The ugliness of the fall of man and the beauty of Christ's love. And actually that all comes together in this massive way on Christ's cross at Calvary. Because when you look at the cross, you see the ugliness that Christ takes on, but you also see the beauty that he gives. The beauty he gives. In fact, in Psalm chapter 90, verse 17, it actually says that the beauty of the Lord is put on you. The beauty of the Lord is put on you. It's put on me. It's put on us. You see, when, when we go before Jesus Christ and our clothes are stained, he doesn't tell you go and wash it yourself and try to get the stains out. No, he knows that's just dead doing. But instead he says, here, have mine. Wear mine. Because that's just deadly doing. In fact, there's a song that goes like this. Lay your deadly doing down. 
down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. The more you see the beauty of what Jesus Christ did for you, the more you realize that you don't have to prove yourself because you are in him. But, and all of the things that you're trying to strive for in this life, strive for in marriage or strive for in career or strive for in notoriety or strive for in satisfaction or strive for in sexuality or strive for in identity, strive for in trying to make a difference or, or in whatever it is that you're going for, all of a sudden those things, they're important, but they, don't be, they all of a sudden don't become as important. They aren't as important because you're satisfied in him. In the billions of galaxies and the stars that cry out his name. And you look and all of creation is praising him. And so will I, and so will I. The more you're satisfied on him, the more the beauty of him rests on you. The more the beauty rests on you. You see, friends, the real battle isn't a scientific battle. The real battle isn't an evidential battle. The real battle is a moral battle. The real battle is the desire that we all have to try to be our own saviors. And the reality is we can't. We can't. You've tried. How many times have you tried? Only to fail only to feel empty, only to feel like there's still something that's not quite right, only to feel failure or, or sadness or depression, only to feel like, man, I have to start all over again, uh, only to take that sense of, man, I try and I just can't do it. That's what Jesus is here to do. That's what Jesus has done in the beauty of this universe that he created he stepped down on this speck of dust to die for you and for me. Lord, this morning we have really looked into the reality that on both sides of naturalism and theism, God, there are brilliant minds behind it. And so what's the answer, God? What's the answer? Lord, we, we, we can be rational and logical and hold on to our faith because our faith is built on evidence. And Heavenly Father, that once we begin to really step and look into the very fact that this universe has been designed, there's intelligence behind it that is just mind-boggling and and awestruck and hypnotizing even because of the beauty of it. And it all points to you. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that in this moment, for the rest of our time here, that we will just be creatures that respond to our Creator. Heavenly Father, the galaxies cry out to you, and so will I. The stars praise you, and so will I. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspired Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. 
You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.